morning. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2? We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 23 this morning. I'll get a little assist here on the pulpit here. Thanks. <laughs> we are continuing in our study of Matthew, a series that we've just begun. We're going to skip over uh, two of the birth passages, the one of Jesus' birth and the coming of the Magi. I'm going to save those for the Christmas season, and we're going to pick up here in chapter 2, verse 13, in a message I've called, Out of Egypt. And let's begin with prayer, and then I'm going to jump in. Father, we thank you for your word. It is our guide. It instructs us. It tells us about Jesus, the way of salvation, about who you are and your plan for our life. And I pray that as we come to you this morning, our hearts would be open to hear what you want to say to us today, that you would encourage and give us strength as we seek to live for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the questions that we have as New Testament believers is, how should we read the Old Testament? I mean, does it apply to us, or is this like reading somebody else's mail, and, you know, the things that happen in the Old Testament really don't have any bearing on us as New Testament believers? Well, no, that's not true. That's not true. The Old Testament isn't just a preface that gives us kind of the intro to the story, but the real stuff is what comes later. No, it's more than that. And so then how do we understand biblical prophecy? These statements that were made concerning the person of Christ, concerning the future events that are going to occur, how does all of that fit together? Well, I believe that Matthew's Gospel can help us to answer those questions. Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any of the other Gospels. And in the way that he uses the Old Testament, Matthew shows us that the Old Testament was written to teach us about Christ. It was written to instruct us not only about Jesus, but about how we should live and that we can learn from the examples of those who have gone before us. In Matthew's Gospel, five times in the first two chapters, he will say that this happened so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. And he is referring to these events that took place in the life of Christ. As I said last week, his aim is to show that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, God's Son, the Savior, the one that we had been waiting for. And the way that he uses biblical prophecy, uh, we are going to see that there are three different ways in which it was fulfilled. When he looks at biblical prophecy, uh, he gives some different examples here for us to kind of see and realize how he is using the text. Sometimes the prophecy is very clear and specific, and there will be a specific answer to it. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 6, when uh, they were wondering where the Messiah was going to be born, the prophets had written, And prophet Micah specifically had said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And that's that's pretty specific. You can get out a map. You can find where Bethlehem is. You can look for that place. You can go visit it today. And if you go to Bethlehem today, you can go to the church in the Nativity. And you can uh, go down into the grotto that's below that church where they believe that Jesus was born. And if you enter into that grotto, unless you are very short, you will bow 
before this place that they believe is the birthplace of the King of Kings because they intentionally have made the doorway so low that everyone who enters has to bow before they can get in. It's a specific place and the people could look for that kind of answer to that prophecy. Same is true in Isaiah 7.14 when the prophet Isaiah said that there would be a virgin who would give birth to a son and they would call him Emmanuel. That's pretty specific. Both in terms of the circumstances and this name for this child who was going to be born. Emmanuel, which means God with us. That there would be something significant, unusual about this child who would be the Messiah, the Savior. Sometimes prophecies have a near and distant fulfillment, and one becomes a sign of the other. In a passage I referred to last week in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 16, David had come before the Lord and he had wanted to build a house for God. He wanted to build a temple for the Ark of the Covenant. And God said, no. And he said, but I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a house for you, David. I'm going to build a dynasty that will come from your line. And that prophet spoke of an immediate heir who would be the one who would build that temple. His name would be Solomon. And he would construct the temple that David wanted to. But there would also come a future heir, the Messiah. Someone who would sit on David's throne and his kingdom would never end. Now when we look at prophecies such as this we don't always know the length of time between them it's kind of like looking at mountain peaks from a distance and you see those peaks of the mountains that are there and they're beautiful and they look so close together and we don't know the valleys that are in between and how far apart they may actually be and when these people heard the prophecies that were given like this one they had no idea that there would be almost a thousand years between Solomon's birth and the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But God knows. And He speaks and He gives us these clues as to who this person would be. And sometimes the prophecy is a type or it's an analogy. For example, uh, the Scripture says that the law and the Old Testament sacrificial system find their fulfillment in the Messiah. Uh, They were examples. They were a type of what is to come. And Jesus in Matthew 5.17 said, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the sacrificial system and all that the prophets were writing about. He's the true meaning of of the text. Donald Carson, who's a professor at Trinity and just an outstanding New Testament scholar, has said this. He said that when we look at the Old Testament, we learn how the law anticipated the gospel, how the Levitical priesthood pointed to a new high priest who would effectively stand between God and humanity and never need replacing We learn how the ancient kingdom of David served as a model or type of the kingdom of God and how certain covenants had a built-in obsolescence that led believers to look forward to the dawning of the promised new covenant and much, much more, much more. 
So when we read in the Old Testament about the Exodus and the Passover lamb, we understand what the New Testament writers were saying when they said that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And when we see the high priest who served in the temple and offered up a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement and would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, we understand what Jesus, our great high priest, did when he offered up not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood as an atonement for our sin so that we might be forgiven. We find Christ throughout the Old Testament. So today we're going to look at three passages that Matthew refers to in this text, and we're going to see what they teach us about God and specifically about Jesus Christ. Number one, we learn that God protects and provides for His Son, and we see that in verses 13 to 15. Let me read it for us. When they had gone, and he's referring to the wise men who had now left uh, Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. When the wise men left, they were warned by God not to go back to Herod. And an angel of the Lord also appears to Joseph and gives him this warning too, that he is to take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt, for Herod was going to kill this newborn king. And Joseph obeys the Lord immediately. When you look at the life of Joseph, Joseph is this silent figure who is so courageous and faithful and obedient, following God's instructions, protecting his wife and his son. And he is this figure who is at work that God is using to preserve his son, Jesus. Egypt would have been a natural place to go. It was about 75, 80 miles away. It would be out of Herod's jurisdiction so he could not do anything to them. And at that time, there were about one million Jews that were living in Egypt. Philo tells us that in the works that he had written about 40 A.D. Most of those Jews were living in a city called Alexandria along the coast. And so if Joseph went there, there would be people he could meet and know and find work and stay until this threat had left. So Joseph takes the child and his mother. And I want to just point out that it's unusual the way that is worded throughout this text. It is for emphasis. Normally you would mention the mother first and then the child. But because this child is no ordinary child, this is God's son. He is mentioned first that Joseph is to take the child and his mother. And they flee that very night. He will stay there until the thread is removed, until Herod has died. And Matthew tells us that all of this happened to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that out of Egypt I called my son. Now where do we find that in Scripture in the Old Testament? Well, we find that in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And what we read there actually referred to God's calling Israel out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus. 
Israel was God's son. Jesus is God's son. And Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, applies this text to Jesus. And Matthew sees in Jesus the history of Israel being relived once again. And what we see are several points of comparison. That Israel as an infant nation went into Egypt. And Jesus as an infant child goes into Egypt. Israel was threatened by a powerful ruler, Pharaoh. And Jesus was threatened by a powerful ruler, Herod. And God protected Israel, and at just the right time, He led them out of Egypt with His mighty hand. And God protected Jesus and Mary and Joseph, and at just the right time, would lead them out of Egypt. Israel was led into the wilderness to be tested. And Jesus Himself will later be led into the wilderness to be tested. This is more than just coincidence. It is the start of a new covenant. The old covenant was inaugurated there when the law was given to Moses and he brought that to the people. And now a new covenant is beginning. And it is beginning with Jesus, God's Son. But where Israel failed, Jesus will triumph. And He will fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. He will accomplish our salvation. Jesus triumphs where others fail. And that's good news. Because all of us have failed. You know, I was thinking about this this week when I I was driving, running some errands. I'm always working on my sermon. It's always perking, you know, in the back of the mind. I'm thinking about the text. I'm thinking about what God wants to say to us as a people. And I was listening to KTIS that day, and there was a testimony that was shared while I was driving. This woman came on, and she was talking about her life and what God had done and the change that He had made. And she told how she had been a drug addict for seven years of her life and struggled with that how she had struggled in her marriage relationship and things had not gone well. And she had tried many other religions, you know, trying to find some kind of answer, something that would help her all without any success. And then she met Jesus. And she surrendered her life to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And her life began to change. And she experienced freedom from her addictions and forgiveness in Christ and restoration in her relationship. Jesus had made her whole once again. And you could just hear the joy in her voice as she shared this, how again, Jesus triumphed where others failed. Because there is no one like Jesus. There's salvation and no one else. He's the only one in whom we may be saved. Secondly, in this text, we see how God gives hope when hope is lost. And we see that in verses 16 to 18. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. 
A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Herod thought he was very clever in using the Magi to help him find the child. He didn't want any usurpers to his throne, and so he figured, well, I'll just be kind of nice with these individuals, and they'll find the king, they'll tell me about him, and I will slay him. And when he found out that he had been outwitted by the wise men, he was furious. And as we read, he ordered the death of every male child in Bethlehem in that vicinity who was two years old and under. The Magi had probably told him when they first saw the star more than a year ago. It would take them that long to make preparations for the journey and to travel the long distance across the desert to this place where they came to worship the newborn king. Herod's paranoia and cruel actions were well known. In his later years as the king, he murdered his favorite wife, Mariamne, and had her two sons strangled. Imagine if she wasn't his favorite wife, what he might have done. I mean, I read that and it just seems funny. And he had another son, Antipater, who was executed because he promoted himself just a little bit too soon as the next heir. He was trying to advance himself a little more than Herod felt comfortable with. A cruel, a vicious, a brutal king. And so the slaughter of the innocent ones in Bethlehem would have been not a big deal to him at all. It was in keeping with his character. Bethlehem wasn't large, maybe 500 to 1,000 people, and so the number of male boys at that time might have been only 15 or 20. But these innocent ones lost their lives because of this cruel, wicked king. And in the cries of their mothers, Matthew heard the echo of Jeremiah 31.15. Actually, that should be Jeremiah 31.15. Rachel weeping for her children, crying, grieving, because they are no more. The town that's mentioned there of Ramah, that area, is actually about five miles north of Jerusalem. Bethlehem's five miles south. But Ramah was where Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, had gathered the exiles who were being carried away into captivity in Babylon. And as those exiles were gathered and these sons were taken away, their mothers wept for them because they would be no more. They grieved. And now here in the slaughter of the innocent children, The mothers of Bethlehem grieved. Yet in the context of that passage, in Jeremiah 31, the Scripture says, There is hope for your future. The Lord declares there is hope. And He speaks of a day when God will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He speaks of a day when I will write My law on their hearts and in their minds. A day when He declares that I will be their God and they will be My people. And He will establish them. And He says, I will forgive their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. The day is coming when God is going to make a new covenant with His people. 
And Matthew is saying to us, that day has arrived in Jesus Christ. The exile will end and the king will return. God gives hope when hope is lost. You know, that theme of hope coming when all is lost is a theme that we see many times played over again in movies. It's a story that resonates in our heart that we long for that when it looks like, you know, there's no hope or this may be the end. Something happens to change that and victory is won. There's a scene in the movie in The Lord of the Rings when the people of Rohan are in danger and they flee to take their last stand at a place they call Helm's Deep. And they are there and they are vastly outnumbered by these evil armies of Mordor that have come up against them and they wait for help to arrive. They are hoping against hope that the king will return in time to lead them to victory. The wall is breached and when it looks like all is going to be lost and they are overrun, they take their last stand. And the dawn breaks and the king returns to vanquish his enemies. There's a symbolism that comes that is just so picturesque of what we long for as the people of God. We see the evil in our world. We see the things that are out there that we can't control. We fight against it. We honor our Lord. We work against things like even world hunger and the needs of people who are starving, who have so little when we have so much. And we long for that day when God will make all things right, when the King will return. And what we see time and time again is that God's power is greater than the power of those who bring sorrow. And these evil, petty kings may rage against the Lord, but He will triumph in the end. And time and time again, He demonstrates in our world His power and His victory. And thirdly, what we see in this text is that God's victory comes through suffering. And we see that in verses 19 to 23. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take this child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. After Herod dies, once again God sends an angel to Joseph with a message. And Joseph again obeys and takes the child and returns to Israel. But as we read, when he learns that Herod's son Archelaus is reigning in Judea, he will go north to the district of Galilee and settle in a small town called Nazareth. Archelaus would reign only ten years, and he was just as cruel as his father. In fact, he was so cruel that he was actually deposed by Rome at the end of those ten years, and they instead removed Herod as king and put in place governors who would rule at that time. 
including one who would be called Pontius Pilate. Matthew said all of this happened to fulfill what was said through the prophets, that he will be called a Nazarene. Now there's a difficulty with this statement, in that there is no verse in the Old Testament that specifically says that he would be called a Nazarene. But did you notice how Matthew introduces this particular statement? He doesn't mention someone like the prophet Jeremiah who said this, or the prophet Hosea. Instead, he uses the word prophets, plural. And he is speaking, we believe, about an idea that the prophets had shared, a belief about the Messiah. And that belief encompassed a couple things. The reference is to two teachings about the Messiah. The first idea comes from the Hebrew word for branch, which means, or which is the Hebrew word netzer. It occurs in Isaiah 11.1 1, and again in chapter 60, verse 1. Again, the word in Hebrew, netzer, means branch. And Isaiah said in 11.1 1, that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. And this term, the branch or the branch of David, would become a favorite title for the Messiah. You can think about that verse. Jesse was the father of David. And when the line of the kings, in a sense, ended when Judah was carried away into captivity in Babylon, all that was left was a stump. A stump. And yet out of that stump, several hundred years later, would come this shoot. This branch that would spring up from the line of David and the line of Jesse. And the Jews at that time were waiting for this one, this Messiah, whom they called the branch. The branch of David or this young shoot. Who will it be? When will it happen? When will he come? The prophets spoke of this one, Netzer, a Nazarene who would come. But a second idea is also the fact that Nazareth was a lowly despised village. It was located about 24 miles west of the Sea of Galilee. It was off of the main road. It was kind of an out-of-the-way place, and not much ever happened there. You can think of it as kind of this podunk village in the backwoods, you know, and you're, you're not thinking that anything significant is going to happen there. Remember Nathaniel's comment when Philip found Nathaniel and brought him to Jesus and told him that Jesus was from Nazareth? And Nathaniel said, can anything good come from there? I mean, he was referring to a commonly held belief of this small town. Why it had such a reputation, we're not entirely sure. But in Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3, in a passage that refers to the suffering servant, this Messiah, the suffering servant, the Scripture says that he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. That is what the Messiah would be. He would be this suffering servant. He would be called this man of sorrows. And yet, He would be the one that would bear our iniquity, who would take up our sins. 
And by His wounds we would be healed. By His blood our sins would be covered. And the prophets were saying that this Messiah, this one who is to come, would be both the branch of David and the suffering servant. Jesus is that one. That's what Matthew is pointing out to us and making clear that Jesus is indeed this Nazarene, the branch of David, the suffering servant. It's interesting to me that the early Christians were also called the sect of the Nazarenes in Acts 24, verse 5. And like Jesus, the way of the cross for us is a way of suffering. We shouldn't expect that we're going to avoid all of that and that life is going to be comfortable and easy. No, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, the Scripture says. There will be some measure of suffering that comes into our life. But just as the suffering of Christ flows into our life, so does His comfort and His strength and His power. And sometimes the means of the greatest victory that God's going to achieve in your life is going to be through those trials in your life and my life that have caused us to fall on our knees before Him and to humble ourselves and say, God, would You work in me? And would You accomplish Your purposes in my life that I could be a witness for You? So how do we read and understand the Old Testament? We look for Christ. We look for Christ throughout the Scriptures. Jesus is the central person of the Bible. History is His story. It's all about Him. J.B. Fowler, a number of years ago, put this together. He said that when we look at the Scriptures, what we find about Jesus Christ is that He is throughout the Old and New Testament. In Genesis, He's the seed of the woman. In Exodus, He's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, He's the atoning sacrifice. In Numbers, He's the bronze serpent. In Deuteronomy, He's the promised prophet. In Joshua, He's the unseen captain. In Judges, He's my deliverer. In Ruth, He's the kinsman redeemer. In Samuel, in Kings and Chronicles, He is the promised king. In Ezra and Nehemiah, He's the restorer of the nation. In Esther, He's my advocate. In Job, He's my redeemer. In Psalms, He's my all in all. In Proverbs, He is my pattern, my wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, He is my goal. In the Song of Solomon, He is my beloved. In all the prophets, He is the coming Prince of Peace. In Matthew, He is Jesus, the King of Kings. In Mark, He is Jesus, the Servant of Man. In Luke, He is Jesus, the Son of Man. In John, He is Jesus, the Son of God. In Acts, He is Jesus ascended and sending. In the epistles, He is Jesus indwelling and filling. And in Revelation, He is Jesus returning and reigning. He is Jesus the Lord. Let's pray.